A good morning to each one. There, I'm on now. And um, <clears throat> you are troopers. <laughs> we have been truly through a marathon. And the thing is, we have covered a lot of information, uh, a lot of information and very fast. Uh, I think of a comment that Edward Reed made once in regards to his presentations. He said it, it was kind of like trying to take a drink of water out of a fire hydrant. And uh, I know it's been like that. So I encourage you to continue your studies. I hope that this has whetted your appetite uh, for a deeper uh, understanding of the sanctuary um, because it leads to a deeper uh, understanding and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that through this weekend it has become uh, very apparent that, that we need this, the sanctuary and its message. We need it. And that the sanctuary reveals to us who we are and what our message is to the world. The world needs to hear this. It's the everlasting gospel. It's God's answer to the sin problem. This is who we are and this is our message. And the world is dying to hear it, literally. Um, this is what makes us uniquely Adventists. This is what makes us uniquely Adventists. So what I'd like to do is to present uh, my last presentation. And I've entitled it Lessons from the End. Uh, we're going to take a closer look at phase three of the judgment the executive portion, and what can we learn from the final moments of the lost that would benefit you and I today. So with that, I'm going to have a word of prayer. I'm going to ask if you would bow your heads to join me, and I will kneel. Gracious Father, we are so thankful truly for what has been a divine appointment. Uh, this is the end. This is what the end looks like. And we are told that the final movements would be rapid. And as, as rapidly as we're seeing things deteriorate around the world, we know that a tipping point is coming in which this thing will spin off into all kinds of craziness. But, but we know that behind that Christ is, is the coming Christ. And so we can look at what is approaching, Lord, with courage and with hope because we know that the end is near and soon we will go home. And so, Lord, as we do gather here, you know the burden upon my own heart as I wish to share the things that I have learned in my work with young people. And I pray, Lord, I know that your burden is far greater, but I pray that your will will be done. Truly, Savior, I pray that you will give me my mind, your mind, rather, that your presence will be both marked and felt I pray that the Holy Spirit be poured out in full measure, uh, as has already been prayed, that, that Lord, all will recognize your voice and not the voice of a feeble mortal. I pray that you will hide this instrument behind the cross. And I thank you, Lord. Now, Savior, please, once more, have mercy upon us and enter into these precincts, Lord. Make this this room truly a sanctuary and help us to recognize your presence. I pray you'll keep the evil one away. 
and I thank you. But Lord, bring to my mind and to my mouth now your thoughts and your words. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Lessons from the end. We have learned that the goal of the judgment, as far as you and I are concerned, is to purify us and prepare us for the second coming of Jesus Christ. To prepare us so that it is safe to save us <laughs> and take us to heaven. But it's also to vindicate the decision that we've made to follow Jesus. But there's another aspect to the judgment that we have to consider. In, uh, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, it says to us that the hour of his judgment has come. There's two ways to look at that. It's not only that God is presiding over the judgment, but also that he is being judged. This whole mess began with accusations that were levied against God. And so the judgment is, is not only about purifying us, it's also about vindicating him and his dealings with the rebellion. And so you should have your handouts with you. And in the little box on the upper corner there, <clears throat> we're just, I'm just going to do a quick overview. And then um, it's an introduction to what we're going to look at. We're going to do then a quick overview of phase one and two of the judgment. And then we're going to focus in on three. And we'll remain there for the remainder of our time. So, the three phases of the judgment. Phase one, we've talked about, is the investigative portion of the judgment. Who are judged, quotes Christians, those who have claimed Christ as their Savior. Who are their participants? It's Jesus and the heavenly family. And the result will be that God is vindicated before the heavenly family. Phase two, the sentencing stage, which takes place during the thousand years. Who are judged there? The lost. Who are the main participants? This time, it's Jesus and the saved. And uh, in the end, God will be vindicated before the saved. The third one is the executive. Who are judged here? The lost. Who are the main participants? It's Jesus and the lost. And God is vindicated before the lost. So let's take a look right quickly here. Phase one of the judgment. The phase one takes place after the first coming. It takes place when, Daniel 8, 14 says, And he said unto me, For 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Uh, and that, of course, is sanctuary terminology for the Day of Atonement, which is the Day of Judgment. And we know that the antitype began October 22, 1844. Who is judged? We've learned this already. 1 Peter 4, 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin where? In the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Who, participant, who participates? Daniel 7, 9, 10, 13, and 14 gives us the view here of the heavenly family here, more specifically the angels. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garments were white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, the books were 
open. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. We've covered this. All right. Did you know, did you know that in the judgment, only one question is asked? That might stun you. You may have wondered that. You may not have been aware of the fact that we were actually given that data. Only one question is asked, and it's found in Gospel Workers, page 315. The only question asked in the judgment will be, have they been obedient to my commandments? That's the only question asked. But we have to understand that the Ten Commandments are ten principles that govern every area of life. Every area of life is governed by those ten basic principles. Uh, for example, if I am not taking care of my health and I end my life sooner, uh, we got to remember God is no more pleased with a quick suicide than he is with a slow one. And uh, if I end my life sooner, that actually comes under the, burn, the thou shalt not kill section. Did you know that? Just to give you an idea. Uh, thinking perverse thoughts comes under adultery. Are, are you with me? They're principles that govern every area of life. Jesus came... Uh, as Isaiah said, to magnify the law. And he came to show it in the life, right? Uh, to show the principles what they look like. That they're, 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 It's more than just outward behavior. It involves also um, the thought life as well. Um, the law is a transcript of who God is. So let's think about this for a moment. I'm going to share something with you that might, uh, might surprise you a little bit. But were you aware, were you aware that God um, does not have love? Okay, there's a difference. God is love. You have to really sink your teeth into this. He is the personification of it. He doesn't have it. He is it. This has very interesting ramifications. What this means is that God has limitations. God has limitations. God is incapable of doing anything that is not motivated by love. Let that sink in. God is incapable of doing anything that is not motivated by love. You know what this means, don't you? This means that every command of God is an appeal to come into harmony with love. Every command of God is an appeal to come into harmony with love. You and I, because of our fallen condition, are selfish and self-centered. That is the antithesis of love. Love is selfless. Sin is selfish. They're the opposite. So every command of God is an appeal. Who does not want to come into harmony with love? Love, I don't want love. That is insanity. It is insanity. So, so the law, the question, are they obedient to my law? He is basically asking, are they in harmony with love? Does that make sense? All right. Are they, by choice, have they been obedient to 
my law. Now, we have learned that the only way to keep God's law is through the inner working of the Holy Spirit, surrendering to the Holy Spirit, connecting with God through that daily experience with Him. We learned that in the daily, didn't we? Didn't we? Very important. Let's take a look at number five, or the next question, Patriarchs and Prophets, number 55, page 55, rather. In the judgment, men, this is an amazing statement. In the judgment, men will not be condemned because they conscientiously believe the lie. Isn't that amazing? What a wonderful God we serve. No one is going to be lost because they conscientiously believe the lie. Because they really thought that the lie was true, honest, honest-heartedly, and so they adhered to it. Brothers and sisters, are we going to find precious Sunday keepers in heaven who thought that Sunday really was God's Sabbath? You better believe it. Absolutely we will. Because they didn't know any different. No Adventists would knock on their door. Are you with me? But let's continue. People will not be lost because they conscientiously believe the lie, but because they did not believe the truth. But more than that, because they neglected the opportunity of learning what is true. You know, so in other words, it's when the Lord revealed the truth that they said no to the invitation to come into harmony with love. And then they said, well, you know, I better not read anymore because I might be held accountable for what I learned. Um, that is the same. That's called willful ignorance when we have the opportunity. But there's something we have to understand about the teachings of Scripture. You know, there's a big, uh, today, uh, in, in all kinds of Christian circles, uh, people are knocking doctrine. They're saying, no, we don't need doctrine. Let's do away with doctrine. Let's stop for a moment. What is doctrine? Doctrine, are, are, that word just basically means teaching. Okay, teaching of what? It's teaching about God. It's teaching who he is. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they might know thee and Jesus Christ who, who thou hast sent, right? That we might know God. It's knowing him. And so when we say we don't need doctrine, what are we really saying? Isn't that crazy? But let me share more about this. When God introduces to us a teaching and he calls us to respond to it, what it actually is is an invitation to get to know him better. When we read about thou shalt not commit adultery, what does that tell us about God? That he values relationships. When we read about thou shalt not steal, God values boundaries. When we read... Um, uh, give me another one here. Honor thy father. God values order and authority. I mean, every command, you know, the four, this fourth commandment uh, of the Sabbath introduces us to our creator. You remove that from scripture and we, how did we get here anyway? He is our creator. So every command is an invitation to come to know Christ better. It's an invitation for a deeper relationship with Christ. When we say no to doctrine, we are saying no to Jesus because truth is more than a concept. It's a person. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. When we say no 
to a teaching of Scripture, we are saying no to the invitation to know God better. And so those who will be condemned were those who did not want to come into harmony with love and said no to the invitation. Does that make sense? Great Controversy 480. In the typical service, only those who have come before God with confession and repentance, whose sins through the blood of the sin offering were transferred to the sanctuary, had a part in the service of the Day of Atonement. So in the great day of final judgment and investigative judgment, the only cases considered are those of the professed people of God. The judgment of the wicked is a distinct and separate work and takes place when? At a later period. The result of this judgment, the investigative, Daniel 7, 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. How long? Forever and ever. Are you looking forward to that? Amen. By the way, we receive the kingdom. This is craziness. Do you realize the implications of that? Brothers and sisters, my young friends, there's a crown waiting for you. What does a crown imply? Royalty. You have been adopted by the king of the universe. You're now his child. You know what that means? That means that you are an heir to the kingdom. What is that? Do you realize that God is going to share the throne with you? Do you spend any time even meditating on the ramifications of that? Do you realize, you may not believe it, but the demons who are sent to destroy you do. They do believe it. They know it. God has assigned his mightiest sentinels to stand watch over his children, his royal children, to bring them home safely. Absolutely the truth. Revelation 22, 11 and 12, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, my reward is with me to give every man according to his work shall be. So this marks the close of probation. Everybody's character now has been fully developed. So now look at the note. In the investigative judgment is revealed through the books who have truly accepted Christ and is safe to save. The family of heaven are satisfied. It is now safe to proceed to phase two. So at the end of phase one, the Lord looks at the angelic host and says, I have revealed to you all the decisions everyone has made. It is very clear who has made a decision and wants to be in harmony with love. <laughs> and uh, so are there any questions? Are you satisfied? The angels look at each other. The heavenly family looks at each other. No questions. We're satisfied. Everyone's good. Okay, let's go get them. All right, now let's proceed to phase two. Phase two takes place after the second coming. Takes, uh, takes place, and we see it here, Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. Which had, uh, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received the mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and raved with Christ for how long? A thousand years. Okay, who is judged? This is amazing, 1 Corinthians 6.2. Do you not know that the saints shall judge what? The world. And 1 Corinthians 6.3. Do you not know that they shall judge angels? We will judge the angels as well. We, by the time this is done, we will know them all by name. When they were created, what their work was, and how they were deceived. We will know it all. 
Who participates? Revelation 24, we read this. Judgment was committed to them, and they live and reign with Christ a thousand years, and it was those who were faithful. Um, let's take a look here. The saints, the saints or the saved. Uh, Review and Herald, 1850. Let's take a closer look at this, this portion. And of course, what we're talking about here, this time period is the thousand years. This is what's going on during the thousand-year period. Uh, this is an amazing quote, Review and Herald, 1850. After the saints are changed to immortality and are cut up together and receive their harps, crowns, and etc., and enter the holy city, Jesus and the saints set in judgment. The books are opened, the book of life and the book of death, which is the book of iniquity. The book of life contains the good deeds of the saints. The book of death contains the evil deeds of the wicked. These books are compared with the statute book, the Bible, and according to that, they are judged. The saints in unison with Jesus pass their judgment upon the wicked dead. Behold ye, says the angel, the saints sit in judgment in unison with Jesus and met out to each of the wicked according to the deeds done in the body. And it is set off against their names what they must receive at the uh, execution of the judgment. This I saw was the work of the saints with Jesus uh, in the holy city before it descends to earth. So this is very amazing, is that now we, working together with Jesus, are now determining what the punishment will be for each one. But let me tweak that a little bit. Do you know who really does decide the punishment for each one? The lost do. What we do in unison with Jesus is that we are auditing the books to make sure that everything is correct. But, but the wicked, the lost, determine their own punishment. Jesus said, as you did it to the, uh, he said, uh, do unto others as you have it done unto you. What, it, what, what we mete out to others will be met out against us. Do you remember when Nathan uh, approached King David? David didn't realize what was coming. David disguises his thrust under the, the guise of a story of a poor man with a lamb and a rich man with all these flocks, and he takes the poor man's lamb. You remember that whole spiel? And uh, David, of course, his sense of justice was roused, and he said, that man will pay for it, and he will pay for it how many fold? How many kids did he lose? So the, the punishment came from whose mouth? From David's. From David's. What we do is we audit the books, and we recognize the decisions that everyone made, and then we validate the choices. Does that make sense? Let's take a look at the note here. Why are we working with Jesus? Someone might ask the question, what gives the saints the right to sit in unison with Jesus in the second phase of the judgment? The answer has to do with these facts. Because like Jesus, the saints were tempted like as those who are being judged, because the saints have experienced victory over the same sins that controlled those who are lost, because the saints have by faith walked in Jesus' footsteps, and in spite of the painful struggle against self, they have through faith and the power of the grace of God in cooperation with the Holy Spirit's work, habitually remained in the process of developing Christ's character of love in their lives, and so after being translated and given God's understanding about each individual case of the lost, they have the experiential right to participate in union with Jesus in the judgment. Does that make sense? The reason why we have the right to do this is the same right that Jesus has because we've been there and done that and we're victorious. Does that make sense? All right. The result, Jude 14, 15, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in and an ungodly way, 
and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, let's look at the note below that. During the sentencing stage, the saved will audit the activities of the investigative judgment and examine the books to understand the level of punishment required to each, uh, in each case of the wicked. The saved are now what? Satisfied, it is now safe to proceed to phase three. So during this time period when we arrive uh, in the New Jerusalem, and won't that be a glorious day? Just walking in. I try to picture those pearly gates. Just walking in. I have this picture in my mind, holding my wife's hand and the hands of my children and walking through those gates. That's what I picture. And once we get there, and it's, it's, you know, it's not time to be building houses, uh, we get to work. And, and while we're there, uh, you know, we have a recording angel uh, that has, that, that's been with us, our friend, and, and while we're there, uh, we start looking around and we may say, hey, you know, um, I, I don't see Pastor so-and-so here. He was such a great guy, or Elder so-and-so. Why aren't they here? They were such wonderful people. I don't understand. And the angel says, come. Let me show you what was happening behind the scenes. Look at all the times that Jesus appealed to our dear brother. Time and time again that he resisted. Does it make sense now? Oh, yes. Now I see there really wasn't anything more Jesus can do. I understand. That, these will be the kinds of things we're doing. And, then, and also, uh, hey, that was my neighbor. There's been a mistake. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know this guy. This guy gave me all kinds of grief. Uh, there really is a mistake. And, and the angel says, come, let me show you something. And the angel begins to show you what he was born into, what his home life had been like, why he was so filled with rage, why he was so angry at the world. But then he shows the day that he encountered Jesus. And how little by little, he began to respond to Jesus. And he began to live up to the things that Jesus was showing him. And that he died in the process. And he didn't have the chance. If he had lived longer, he would have continued to respond. So he turns to you and says, do you think it's safe to bring him here? Why, yes. I understand now why he's here. Does this make sense? And so when, it, when all the questions have been answered, Jesus looks at all the saved and says, does it make sense to you now why those who are here are here and why those who aren't are not here? Are you satisfied that the punishment that each gets is just and right? And the saints go, you know, Lord, what else could be done? It's so, it's so self-evident. Yeah, we're satisfied. All our questions are answered. And then Jesus says, okay, it's time to finish this. Let's go. And so we enter into phase three. And phase three takes place after the third coming of Jesus. We never talk about that. <laughs> but it takes place after the millennium, after the thousand years when Christ returns, this time with the saints. And uh, let's take a look at phase three. It takes place when Revelation 20 verse five says, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. Who is judge? Revelation 20, 11 through 13 says, and I saw a great white throne and... Uh, and him that sat on it, 
from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which are in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which are in it, in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Who participates? Uh, Revelation 20, 11, 13 told us, and I saw a great white throne, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. This is really... This is really a weird moment, a unique moment in earth's history. For the very first time, and for the very last time, all of humanity will be alive at the same time. The whole human family will be alive at the same time. Very unusual. What will happen, and we know what happened if, we've, if you've done your reading, is that the, the, the wicked encircle the city, Satan incites them, to, for one desperate last attack to take the city. And as they launch their attack and they're about to destroy the city and attempt to do it anyway, suddenly above the city, um, Christ appears in his glory and arrests everyone right in the tracks. And there Jesus, the final coronation, takes place, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And then an interesting description, Ellen White, who was not aware of our technology, she uses this wording, Suddenly, a panoramic view appears. It's like, like the sky becomes one large movie scene. And everybody watches the creation of the world. Well, actually, the, first it begins with the rebellion in heaven, the creation of the world, the fall of Adam. We're going to be there in the garden, friends. We're going to watch this. And then we're going to watch the, uh, Cain, the, murderer, the first murderer, kill his brother, and then the development of the human race. We're going to see God's appeal to Noah to build an ark. We're going to see the destruction of the world by flood. We're going to see the Tower of Babel. We're going to see Abraham. We're going to go all the way to the birth in Bethlehem. We're going to see the ministration of Jesus. We're going to be there at the trial, the crucifixion of Christ. We're going to see the whole thing, and it's going to go all through history to the very end, and every human being is going to see the part they played in the great controversy. I want to share one thing with you that you will not see. You will not see my sins. There are things back there I'm ashamed of, and it's all washed away in the blood of the Lamb. That you will not see. You will not see. But everyone will see the part that they played. Result, Philippians 2, 10, and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall what? Shall bow. And when it means everybody, I love how the Bible hits this. Those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then, Revelation 20, verse 11, uh, some, some of the saddest words in Scripture, and there was found no place for them. Revelation 20, verse 9, and fire came down, from God out of heaven and devoured them. In Revelation 20, verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What I'd like to do now is to backtrack. The Bible, uh, the, uh, the prophetic section are written in that manner, repetition and expansion. And so now let's repeat and expand. Let's take a look at those final moments. Uh, Great Controversy 668. It is now evident to all that the wages of sin is not noble independence and eternal life, but slavery, ruin, and death. Let's just stop and think about that for a moment, because now the lost have come to the realization that 
uh, the wages of sin is not noble independence. And that's what Satan whispers in our ear. Young people, I hope you're listening because you're the ones getting hammered on this the worst right now. This is your, this period in your life. The devil is telling you, hey, you know, God's stuff is big slavery. No, it isn't. It's actually freedom. It actually is. It's an appeal to come into harmony with love. That's all that is. It really is. And so now, now they realize that it was not noble independence. You know, I did it my way. Those were Elvis's last words before he overdosed on drugs. Yeah, he did it his way. Let's applaud. It's not noble independence. It's slavery. It's what it is. Now, this is very interesting. The wicked, look at the next word. What's the next word? Very significant, that word in what we're about to read. The wicked see what they have forfeited by a life of rebellion. The far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory was what? Despised when offered them. But how desirable it now appears. It is pitiful. And you know what? What's recorded for us are their words. Listen to what they say. All this, cries the lost soul, I might have had, but I chose to put these things far from me. Oh, strange infatuation. I have changed peace, happiness, and honor for wretchedness, infamy, and despair. Here she says it again. All what? See. Their, their exclusion from heaven is what? Just. By their lives, they have declared, we will not have this man Jesus reign over us. You know, when I was uh, a young man, I was about 18 years old, I would drive home from Glendale Academy and, uh, and I had to, you know, it was quite a drive to my house, uh, driving through the city. And, uh, and, in those t- and in that time, I really wasn't a Christian. I went to an Adventist school. I wasn't a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. I, I wasn't. But there was this church. The marquee was fascinating. I, I, I'm in the habit of reading church marquees. I think that most of them should just basically put what their worship service times are and leave it alone because a lot of the stuff they put there just isn't worth reading. But this particular church was consistent. It was like whoever was putting the stuff up really put their heart, soul, and prayer into it because they always had thought-provoking stuff. It was just amazing. And on this particular day, I was at the stoplight, and I looked over to see what they had up there, and they had a very interesting definition of hell. This is what they said. Hell is truth seen too late. Hell is truth, seen too late. Now they see. Now they see. Why didn't they see before? Sin is deceptive. The only way to see truth is through the Holy Spirit. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So what was happening is is that they were deceived. But the sad reality is is that they chose the deception. They didn't want to see. And so God brought people into their lives with appeals. My friend, 
This is, this is what God was saying through the appeal. Dear child, you don't realize what you're doing. You really do want what I'm offering you. You really do. This is going to make you so happy. You really do want to want it. No, I don't want it. Boom. Now their hearts are a little more hard. So God brings someone else in. No, no, my child, honestly, you really do want this. You're going to be so happy when you see this. You're going to love it. You really will. I, I created you for this. This is going to fill your heart, your mind, your desire for joy, lasting joy, and lasting peace, and lasting fulfillment, and meaning, and true love. I have all of that for you. No, I don't want it. <clears throat> the heart was closed a little more. And God was, was racing against the clock. It's very similar to what's happening with, with the big struggle between the U.S. government and Apple with that iPhone. The government needs to get in there, and they know they only have so many shots at it before the thing closed down and it's lost forever. And so God only has so many shots before we shut ourselves down and are closed from Him forever. And it's called the unpardonable sin. But the sad reality is that, that in the end, everyone is going to see it anyway. What does one risk by just taking a look now? What is risk? You can always go back to a world of sin later. Can't you? What do you risk? God says, hey, I'm not forcing you. Just taste and see. You risk nothing by try. You risk nothing. But in the end, everyone will see. But you know something else that really blew my mind when I read this? Is what was not said. Let me share with you what was not said. This is not what the lost said. The lost did not say this. Wow, that's heaven. It's nice. But you know, I enjoyed my day in the sun. I enjoyed my life of sin. It was worth it. Not even the devil says that in the end. Nobody says that in the end. Instead, what they say is recorded for us. All this I might have had? But I chose to put these things far from me. Oh, strange infatuation. In other words, they're saying, what was I thinking? I have changed peace, happiness, and honor for wretchedness, infamy, and despair. Isn't that pitiful? But let's continue. Signs of the Times, page 18. I mean, Signs of the Times, 1890. Sin is a mis- this, this answers a question somebody asked me here this week. Sin is a mysterious, unexplainable thing. There is no reason for its existence. To seek to explain it is to seek to give a reason for it, and that would be to justify it. Sin appeared in a perfect universe, a thing that was shown to be inexcusable and exceedingly sinful. The reason of its inception or development was never explained and never can be. Even at the last great day when the judgment shall sit and the books be opened, when every man shall be judged according to the deeds done in the body, when the sins of God's repentance uh, sanctified people shall be heaped upon the scapegoat, the originator of sin, at that day it will be evident to all that there is not and never was any excuse for sin. At the final condemnation of Satan and his angels, and of all men who have finally identified themselves with him as transgressors of God's law, every mouth will be stopped. When the hosts of rebellion, from the first great rebel to the last transgressor, are asked why they have broken the law of God, they will be speechless. 
There will be no answer to give, no reason to assign that will carry the least weight. Excuses will not work then. We may be making them now, but in the face of the data, it will not work. Why? Because there was no reason to go against love. There was no reason. The the universe was perfectly happy until somebody said, no, you're really not happy. No, I'm not. Yes, they were. There was no reason to go against love. It was a lie. Review and Herald, 1850. When the wicked saw that they had lost and fire was breathed from God upon them and consumed them, this was the execution of the judgment. The wicked then receive according to the saints in unison with Jesus had meted out to them during the thousand years. Now here's the big question. But pastor, couldn't we just take him to heaven anyway? Wouldn't they be happy there? Let's read. Great Controversy 542. Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, the holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love. Every countenance beaming with joy. Enrapturing music and melodious strains. Rising in honor of God and the Lamb. And ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sitteth upon the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and joy in their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven. But this is interesting. But they have never, what's the next word? Train the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. This is an amazing statement here, but can you imagine a place filled with love and joy? They couldn't stand it. That is amazing. Why? Because they trained their minds to not love purity. How do you train your mind? Let me share with you how. Two ways, at least two ways. I'm sure there are more. There are at least two ways. When the Holy Spirit prompts me, don't do that. And I say, okay. And the Holy Spirit says, will you do this? Okay. I am training my mind to respond to purity and holiness. Does that make sense? But when I say to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit, no, I don't want to. No, I don't want to. I am training my mind to reject it. Does that make sense? Let me share with you another way to train our minds. You know that when a person uh, begins smoking or, or drinking alcohol, and I'm sure you've talked to people who have said this to you, that at first they, they didn't like it at first, right? But after continuing doing it, then they finally ended up liking it. They acclimated to it, right? If we expose ourselves to evil, to filth, if we, in, in, the, in the things we watch, in the things we read, in the things we listen to, we are training our minds to love filth and to hate purity. We would never be happy in heaven. Does that make sense? So we have a part to play here. You know, you know what the judgment reveals to me about God? Two things. God is extremely transparent. 
He's not hiding anything from us. He's not being arbitrary. He's not being controlling. He is not being manipulative like Satan said. The other thing that what reveals to me about God in the judgment is that God is incredibly respectful of our freedom to choose. In the end, those who are saved are the ones who chose to be. And those who are lost are the ones that chose to be. That makes sense, doesn't it? It really does. And it has to be that way because love cannot exist in an environment where there is no freedom. I love my wife, and I know my wife loves me. She has the freedom to walk away and choose someone else at any time. The fact that she doesn't fills my heart with gratitude and affection towards her. Love cannot exist in an environment of control. It can't, and God knows that. So he gives everyone freedom so that love can exist. Does that make sense? If you're with me, say amen. amen. Let's continue. Let's continue with that statement. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be what to them? Can you imagine? It would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would, what's the next word? Long to flee from that holy place. They would what? Welcome destruction that they might hide from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Why is it merciful? What can you do with them now? Put them on their own planet with Satan? You know what that kind of existence would be? They, they, but, they, but even with that, he was still controlled and held back by God. Amazing. And so the record in Revelation 20 says, and no place was found for them. And so what can you do? You know how many of you have ever had a pet that you really loved and you cared for, and then something happened and you had no choice but to put it down? How many of you have been there? Now, friends, if you loved your pet, why did you put it down? Because you loved your pet and there was nothing else that you could do. It was the last loving thing to do. And I remember having to take, uh, you know, that usually tends to be dad's job. <laughs> when the pet is time, usually it's dad. Am I right? Typically it's dad that has to take the last long trip to the humane society or what have you. And I remember our, a dog we had named, named Brandy, and we had to do that. And I remember taking her there to the humane society, and my heart was broken. She had broken her back. And it was obvious what was going to have to happen next. And I remember uh, taking her into the, and my heart was breaking. I, it, it still makes me sad as I would look into the back seat and, and see those eyes. I still remember the song that was playing on the radio. Actually, my cassette. And I went in, and, and, I, and, I, and I, you know, it was obvious what had to happen next. And this girl came in and just kind of gathered her up, and I began walking with her. She was one of the assistants, and she said, I'll be right back. Um, when it's over. And I said, no, I want to be there. She said, uh, no, no, um, you need to stay here. I'm going. And I go, no, no, I need to go. And she looked at me kind of authoritatively and said, no, I'll bring her back when I'm done. And I looked at her authoritatively and I said, wherever you take that dog, I'm going. I'm going to be there. 
So you do it here, you do it there, it didn't matter where you do it, but I'm gonna be there. So then she left and someone else came. <laughs> and, and I remember when they gave her the injection, I just held her little face and I just talked to her as her life ebbed away. And I can't imagine what it's gonna be for God when it will be he who has to put down his own children. But he will be there. He won't leave that work for anyone else to do. He will be there. The note below that. During the third and final phase, the wicked are shown why they are lost and soon punished. The wicked are what? They're convinced. It is now safe to execute the sentence and bring an end to the rebellion. And at that point, every knee bows and says, you know, God, you were right. Even Satan does that and says there was nothing left for you to do. You were right. Ezekiel 33, 11, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The note below that. The judgment is to ensure that everyone will be fully satisfied with the way that God has dealt with the rebellion. Now all are satisfied and God is vindicated in the destruction of sin and sadly sinners. The great controversy is over. You know, when, when the controversy broke out in heaven, God knew, God knew where this thing was leading. He knew the price that this was going to cost heaven himself. He knew he knew that the right thing to do was to destroy Lucifer. But if he had done it then, the universe would not have understood what sin was. God had no choice. He had to let it run its course so that the universe would be satisfied when he finally dealt with it. We're at the place now that we're crying out for justice, aren't we? God, please bring an end to this. Aren't we? We are satisfied. Great Controversy 670. God's wisdom and justice and his goodness stand fully what? Vindicated. You know what that means? It is true. God is love. God is love. And the result, Nahum 1.9, affliction shall not arise a second time. The universe is now inoculated. It will never happen again. People look at sin now and they say, how dumb is that? How dumb is that? Who doesn't want to be in harmony with love? Conclusion. The Zara of Ages 57, 58. The worshipers of self belong to Satan's kingdom. In their attitude toward Christ, all will show on which side they stood. Here's the key. And thus everyone passes judgment on themselves. You see, brothers and sisters, my young friends, it was never God's decision that we had to fear. It was not God that we were to be afraid of. It was ourselves all along that we had to fear. I don't know about you, but I've come to the place in my life, I no longer trust me. I realize if not before the grace of God, I am capable of any and every sin known to humanity. It is only by the grace of Christ that, that I haven't done worse in my life. And let me add the prayers of my mom. In the day of final judgment, every lost soul will understand the nature of his own rejection of what? 
of truth. By the way, is truth just a concept? It's a person. So let's read that sentence again. In the day of final judgment, every lost soul will understand the nature of his own rejection of Christ. The cross will be presented and its real bearing will be seen by every mind that has been blinded by transgression. In other words, now they see. Before the vision of Calvary and its mysterious victim, sinners will stand condemned. Every lying excuse will be swept away. Human apostasy will appear in its heinous character. Men will see what their choice has been. Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy will then have been made plain. In the judgment of the universe, God will stand clear of blame for the existence or the continuance of evil. It will be demonstrated that the divine decrees are not accessory to sin. There was no defect in God's government, no cause for disaffection. When the thoughts of all hearts shall be revealed, both the loyal and the rebellious will unite in declaring, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thy judgments are made manifest. And you notice how my final thoughts there, right? It's not the end. It's the beginning. My friends, I want to share with you that what happens then is eternity. But did you know that eternity can begin for you today? If we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and the Savior of our lives, if we make the decision to follow the King of love and to look at His commands in our lives, not as a restriction, but as an appeal to come into harmony with love, then eternity begins for you and me. Our walk with Jesus. Do you realize that heaven, all heaven is, isn't a place, it's a person. Do you realize that, that Jesus is the fountain of joy? You want to know what the source of joy is and of happiness and of peace? It all flows from Him. Heaven, as far as New Jerusalem and all that, wouldn't be anything if Christ wasn't there. And you can have Him now and begin that walk with Him. And we learned that in the sanctuary... We learn how. By every day coming to Jesus who says, come unto me all ye that are burdened and heavy laden and I will give you rest. It's casting our sins upon our Savior, asking for forgiveness and making sure that nothing exists between our soul and our Savior. It's each day rededicating our lives to Jesus and to his service. It's each day asking for the Holy Spirit to be poured into our lives, that holy oil. It's every day spending time in the bread of life, realizing that man should not live, well, the bread, not only physical, but by spiritual bread, which is Christ Jesus. And spending time in prayer, talking to our Savior, as well as interceding for others and entering by faith into the most holy place where Jesus is purifying us from sin. Are you willing 
to walk with Jesus and let eternity to begin now? Let's close with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, you have taught us a lot here today, a lot to contemplate. But we are so grateful, Father, that you are so loving, that you, you present to us all the data so that we can make an intelligent decision. Help us to remember, Father, Satan really isn't interested in our happiness and freedom. He is a psychopathic serial killer that hates us, and he's seeking every opportunity possible to wipe us out of existence. Help us to understand, Lord, to use our thinker that you gave us to look back in our lives and see that every good thing we've ever had was given to us by you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you remind us each day of the things that we learned here this weekend, that you do love us. Calvary's cross speaks of that most eloquently when you risked everything to bring us home. Help us, Lord, to avail ourselves of that love and to realize that that cross and that experience that you went through defined our worth and nothing can take it away and we can do nothing to add to it. You only ask us to accept it. May we do so to our salvation and to your glory and honor and great joy is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.